We can be turning in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. We'll be in verses 1 through 19 this morning of Genesis 22. There is a an outline handout on the back table, and it should be in your email as well if you're on the church email list. That might help you track a little bit with with all that we have to cover this morning. I suppose there's a slight chance this may bleed over into the afternoon service, but I'm trying to cover it in the morning. We will see what happens. We come today in Genesis 22, 1-19, to the greatest test of Abraham's faith. It's a test which justified or vindicated his profession of trust in God. So we're not saying that it, the Bible's not saying that it declared him righteous before God, the righteous judge, but it vindicated his profession of faith. His faith was vindicated by his works. As James 2, verse 20 says, and going through verse 26, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So whereas in the scriptures which never contradict themselves, whereas the apostle Paul strongly tells us that justification before God, that which actually makes us right with God, judicially, that is by faith alone. It's by grace alone, God's grace alone, through our faith alone as the instrument, which connects us to Christ alone. Whereas Paul says that, James is not contradicting Paul, but he's saying, if you say that you have that real faith, and there's no works springing from the faith, then it's a dead faith. Abraham's faith was vindicated in the sense of being proved to be a living faith. (laughs) As he, by God's grace, passed the greatest test of his faith in his life. So living faith will be vindicated by the works of faith. And furthermore... Believers must be prepared to have their faith tested and refined. True faith will ultimately pass the test. As James said earlier in his same epistle, James 1, verses 2 through 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials or testings of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then down in verse 12 of that text, he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, under testing. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Similarly, one more text. 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 3, 
speaking to us believers in Christ, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So what we're about to see in Genesis 22 is an extreme example of a true believer passing the test of trust in God. But the significance of this account goes far deeper than that, and it soars far higher than that. Because this test of Abraham in relation to his son Isaac, this is not something that you as a believer will ever have to face in this setting. It was intentionally unique. It is a portrait, a grand portrait, a picture of the greatest drama of all. And it's to that drama that I must draw your attention today and that must be the center of this sermon. So I won't focus much on what we often call application today, though I'm sure it will come out. But I have to aim for your mind and affections in a different way. As you see this portrait of God's own love for you, a sinner, as we'll see, the word of God has to pierce you to your very soul so that you can see this greater drama of redemption you can believe it, and you can stake everything on it. That's ultimately what God was setting up here as he tested Abraham. We'll see that as we go today. But the big idea of the text, as you see in your notes there, is this. The account of Abraham, not withholding his only son, displays God's purposes of redemption. The account of Abraham not withholding his only son displays God's purposes of redemption. So first of all, let's just look at the portrait of Abraham and Isaac here. Let's look at the story, which is a true story. Verses 1 through 6, as God begins to bring this test to bear upon Abraham, we see Abraham's prompt obedience to God in the test. Verses 1 through 6. Uh, We'll read starting in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. 
On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. Someone has said that this word for testing, when it says God tested Abraham, means means to see what condition someone is in before God, whether that person will obey God or not. That's sort of the scriptural context often for God testing someone. To show put on display whether someone will obey God or not in very difficult circumstances, whether their heart is really all God's. God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac. Remember, Ishmael had been cast out. He was no longer, at least you could say, actively on the scene, Abraham's son. And furthermore, God had said, in Isaac shall your offspring be called. And it's through Isaac that all the promises of God to Abraham and to the world, it's in Isaac that all those will come to pass. And through him and through his offspring. And yet here, God says, after all those promises, those oaths, swearing by himself, as it were, to Abraham, walking between the slain animals himself, God unconditionally promising things to Abraham and to the world, after all that, God says to Abraham, Take your son and kill him. Not just a random killing, but offer him as a burnt offering, which a burnt offering pictured total surrender and devotion to God. It's important that the text stresses here and later as well. God tells Abraham, do this to your only son. Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 18 say, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. That is, as we will see, God stopped him, but he went all the way to the point of being in the act before God stopped him. Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. Or, that's the word that in in some translations, is translated his only begotten son, monogene. He was in the act of offering up his only begotten son, you could say, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. We'll come back to that text in Hebrews a little later. But that's important for the picture that's being set up. Perhaps it's not that important, but we wonder, perhaps, how old was Isaac on this occasion? Well, uh, the word used for him, translated boy here, um, is na'ar, um, which can mean a broad range of things. It can be applied to even an infant or even a 30-year-old. You can find examples both ways in Scripture and everything in between. Uh, it could be a young man. He was old enough to carry the wood up the mountain, up, up the hill, and uh, he's old enough to interact intelligently with his father on the level we see here. And it seems that even 
I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but even in the next few verses, as at some point it had to dawn on Isaac what was happening, it seems that he is silent and surrendered. It's striking. But a burnt offering. John Currid says, according to the later laws of Leviticus, the burnt offering begins with the offerer slaying the victim with a knife. Leviticus 1, 4-5. Then he would arrange the sacrifice on top of wood on an altar. Fire would then be lit to devour the sacrifice, going up in the smoke of the flame. And as Steinman points out, such sacrifices involved killing and dismembering the offering and burning it on the altar. Now, I'm not sure if all that was implied here or not, but he's pointing out this is what the original readers of Genesis would have had come to their mind. He says this would have been shocking to the original readers of Genesis since the law of Moses strictly forbade human sacrifice. Leviticus 18 and 20. Though at times it was practiced among non-Israelites and Israelites who adopted pagan practices, But he says, while biblical law required that all firstborn sons be dedicated to Yahweh, the sons themselves were not to be sacrificed. Instead, animals would be offered in their place. And he gives scripture references. The point is, God himself said in the law of Moses that human sacrifice was an abomination to him. Elsewhere in the prophets, he says, it never entered my mind that this should be done in worship to me. So this is meant to be shocking. Moses is writing this in God tells Abraham to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. This isn't a case where it's just us modern people being shocked because we're not used to sacrifice. Israel would be shocked to hear this. That's on purpose. Because God wants us to feel the weight of this picture. And it's striking that from what's recorded... Though certainly Abraham must have been in turmoil and agony of soul, there's none of that recorded. Abraham simply does what he has to do to obey. And that's all that's recorded. He seems to do it quietly and determinedly. Derek Kidner said, Abraham's trust was to be weighed in the balance in this test, that is. His trust was to be weighed in the balance against common sense, human affection, and lifelong ambition. In fact, against everything earthly. This was his only son, whom he loved, as God himself said. This, was, this boy was the key to all the promises of redemption and all the promises to Abraham's offspring. This didn't seem to accord with the character of the good and gracious God himself. But all Abraham knew was what God had said. So Abraham tells, it says in the text, when when Abraham and the servants and Isaac get to where they can see the area of Moriah and Mount Moriah, Abraham says to the servants to stay with the donkey. And he says, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Notice, I and the boy it's being said, will come again to you. Now, was Abraham just just, uh, lying until he could figure out something to do? No. Again, Hebrews 11, 17-19. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. 
And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. But here's the verse I haven't read yet. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back, the text says. The picture is not only one of death, but of resurrection, Hebrews tells us. Isaac was brought to the point of death, but he came back, as it were, from the dead to his father. And Abraham, it says, before he knew the answer to what God was doing, Abraham was convinced that if he took the knife and slit his son's throat, God would raise Isaac from the dead. Because otherwise, God's promises couldn't be fulfilled. So Abraham is speaking in faith to his servants when he says, we will go and worship and we will come again to you. Now we move to verses 7 through 8, which is sort of, it's an important hinge in this story. Abraham's confident answer to Isaac. We have this little conversation, very brief, recorded, which is so heart-wrenching and striking. Verses 7 through 8. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. I'm carrying the wood. You're carrying the fire. Maybe maybe burning coals. And his dad had the knife as well. But Isaac says, But where is the ram? The, excuse me, the lamb. Where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Hmm. God will provide. That's important. Hang on to those words for later in the text. Abraham is not deceiving Isaac here. He did not understand what God was doing, but he gives Isaac the honest answer of faith that he could give. He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. That's all Abraham could say. What more could he say? Now we come to verses 9 through 14, where we see God's commendation and provision for Abraham. Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son. He tied him up. And laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord, remember he's been, this angel of Yahweh has been showing up throughout the text of Genesis as the second person of the Trinity, God himself. The word of God speaking to Abraham. It says, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide. 
As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now, uh, one commentator on that last verse there, he he said he left it with that translation in his commentary, but he said he's not sure it's correct. He thinks it's also possible to render that at the end of verse 14, it will be said, it will be said, today on this mountain Yahweh provided for slash revealed himself. Abraham's name for the place, the Lord will provide, is literally the Lord will see, like he'll see to it. <laughs> and uh, most take verse 14 as saying, even in Moses' day, or some think there was an editor that came even after Moses, I don't tend to go that way. But in the day of the readers, it was still said, it will be provided or it it will be seen or he will be seen on the Lord's mountain. And the name Moriah actually comes from this, probably. At least it's related to it. The name Moriah seems to be a wordplay on the, the Hebrew words for seeing, like the Lord will see to it, and the Hebrew word for fear, fearing the Lord. Meredith Klein says, Referring to this saying, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided, or the Lord will appear. He says the name Moriah is based on this verb, used again in the account of Solomon's building the temple at this site, 2 Chronicles 3.1. Identified there as the place where the Lord appeared to David. So there's many possible references in the future to how in this mountain the Lord appears, the Lord shows up, or the Lord sees to it himself, or the Lord provides a sacrifice in this place. There's uh, so much possible significance to this, we, I don't think we can narrow it down to just one thing, necessarily. But what, what drama that God lets Abraham get to the point of reaching for his knife until he stops him? And the Lord says, you've passed the test. God didn't want Abraham to slaughter his own son. But God, in his goodness, tested and proved that Abraham feared God. That is, he revered God. He reverenced him in a way that he would obey him no matter what. Now, Abraham's still a sinner. He's not glorified yet here. But God, by his grace, enables him to pass this greatest test of his life. Abraham had not withheld his only son from God. And yet God provided a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. So there's a, sub a substitute, and God provided the substitute in Isaac's place. Then we go to verses 15 through 19. God's unbreakable oath to Abraham. <clears throat> Verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. 
and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Hebrews picks up on this, this oath here. Because this is, these are the sorts of things the Lord has already promised Abraham, unconditionally even. But it's all intensified here. God chooses this occasion, which pictures the very drama of redemption itself. He chooses this occasion to, in the most intense way yet, affirm his promises to Abraham. But Hebrews 6, verses 13 and 14 say, when God, uh, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. There's no greater oath God could have given. By myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh. What does God promise here? Well, countless offspring, as many as the stars in heaven, as many as the sand on the seashore. Victorious offspring, we'll talk about that. Your offspring will possess the gate of his enemies. And blessing for all the nations in Abraham's offspring. Not just what God had said in Genesis 12, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now it says specifically, in your offspring, all nations will be blessed. I think the, the part of this that we probably don't, that we are probably least likely to get on the first read-through is the part about possessing the gate of his enemies. Um, the gate area, as one commentator put it, is the central place of a city where administrative, social, and judicial activity takes place. This is where business is conducted. This is where the judges hold court. Uh, this is where all the important stuff takes place in, in, for the city. So, the commentator says, the gate is figurative, a synecdoche, if you want that big technical term, <laughs> part standing for the whole, something like that. It's figurative for the entire holdings of one's enemies. The idea in that culture is if, if you have secured the gate of the city, you have the city. You got the whole thing. And here, it's interesting, the concept of conquering enemies comes out explicitly in God's promise to Abraham's offspring. This maybe didn't come out as clearly earlier in the promises to Abraham. But here, there's this idea of having enemies to conquer. And this makes sense on multiple levels. Certainly, first of all, the curse on Canaan from Genesis 9 was fulfilled as Abraham's physical offspring. The Israelites under Joshua conquered Canaan. They possessed the city gates in the land promised to Abraham. But we can go deeper and farther in this. We can see this talk of conquering enemies really from two more angles. First, Again, we're in Genesis, so you're going to get tired of this. Genesis 3.15, promise of the seed of the woman, right? Genesis 3.15 had predicted hostilities between the, the many offspring of the woman, those who believe God's promises, and the offspring of the serpent, 
those who continue in the works of their father, the devil. So there's, there's going to be hostilities, even warfare, between God's people and those who are still of their father, the devil. But then there's another level, because Genesis 3.15 had promised also a great singular offspring of the woman, one particular man born of woman, who would crush the very head of the serpent himself. And that promise, of course, of the offspring of the seed is passed from Eve to Abraham. And this offspring, both as a redeemed group and as an individual savior, will war against the devil and his offspring and will conquer them. So what am I getting at? Well, this isn't just about those who would curse Abraham and his offspring as if we're just talking about personal feuds or even maybe anti-Semitism. <laughs> it's not just that. No, this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. There would come another son of Abraham to the mountains of Moriah. And by laying down his life like Isaac, he would crush the devil's head. And he would redeem the devil's captives out of every nation on earth. Um, Andrew Simon ex explains the, the wording here a little bit. And listen carefully. He says, the promise here shifts in these verses to a particular offspring of Abraham. Like the English word offspring, the Hebrew word, literally seed, could either be a collective referring to many or a particular referring to only one. To signal the shift to a particular offspring in Hebrew, the verb possess is singular, as is the following pronoun in his enemies, not their enemies, as in many English versions. This offspring of Abraham will take possession of the gates of his enemies. Finally, the last promise continues the focus on a particular offspring through whom all nations will consider themselves blessed, verse 18. Thus, the last two of these three promises are specifically messianic, in nature and find their fulfillment in Christ. Again, this is very important because this is one of the key texts for why the Apostle Paul says, Galatians 3, that the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Galatians 3.16, it does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ, Paul says. So here we come right to an explicit promise, not only for God's people in general, but relating to the Christ, the Savior, the Deliverer. So we come here past the portrait of Abraham and Isaac. We come to the point for Abraham's offspring. First of all, think of, well, yes, the tabernacle, but later the temple sacrifices of Israel. For sake of time, I won't read the whole account, but uh, it's the references are listed there in your notes. First Chronicles 21 tells the story of how, uh, because of a sin that David committed in numbering Israel in a certain way, God sent his angel to kill people by, by pestilence in Israel. God had actually given David his choice of, of between three punishments, and David chose the one where God was directly the one meeting out punishment because he knew God was gracious. But it says in 1 Chronicles 21 that there was a particular spot 
where the angel of the Lord could be seen with his outstretched sword ready to strike Jerusalem. And make a long story short, David on that spot at a threshing floor of a man named Ornan the Jebusite, David purchases the site and offers an offering there. It says he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord, and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded the angel, and he put his sword back into its sheath. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. And it 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 goes on to explain that the tabernacle of the Lord was too far away at this time of the plague. But it says something very important then in the next verse, First Chronicles 22.1. Then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. And so it's on this spot where God answered David by fire from heaven that the temple is built by Solomon, David's son. And you know what that spot was. Second Chronicles 3 verse 1 says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Israel knew that the Jerusalem Temple Mount was at least the area where Abraham had been sent to offer Isaac. And so this was a picture then when God provided the ram in the place of Isaac It was a picture that was then furthered through the sacrificial system. There was substitution required if one was to be right with God. Blood had to be shed. And so you have the Old Testament sacrificial system. And for instance, Leviticus 1, it speaks of burnt offerings. And listen to the first four four verses of Leviticus 1. It says, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. Remember the ram was male. And here it's a male of the herd, so like a, a bull. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, communicating substitution. And it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So in this place, named, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide the sacrifice. In this place, the temple of God is erected. And here is where over and over and over again it's emphasized You are guilty before God as a sinner. But there's a way to approach him. It's through the sacrifice God provides. And it's a bloody sacrifice. The sacrifice of a male without defect. And that brings us to the death and resurrection of Christ, of course. In this same area of Jerusalem... The one who had spoken to Abraham from heaven, the angel of the Lord, now become flesh. He came as 
Meredith Klein again says, the one who intervened was the pre-incarnate son, only begotten of the father, the one who intervened to stop Abraham. The one who must one day become the true sacrifice for sin and who, though slain, would rise again. Or Derek Kidner says, so Abraham is enabled in the surrender of his son to mirror God's still greater love. While his faith gives him a first glimpse of resurrection. Isaac, too, comes briefly into his own, not by what he does, but by what he suffers. Here, it seems, is his role, undistinguished though he may be in himself. Others will do exploits. It is left to this quiet victim in a single episode to demonstrate God's pattern for the chosen seed to be a servant sacrificed. Isaac lays down his life willingly as the father is about to offer up that life. And this is the picture. Many have even observed that Isaac went to the place of his death carrying the wood on which he would be slaughtered as Jesus went out bearing his own cross. But the fire and the knife are in the father's hands. It's the father who takes the life. So doesn't it mean more when God gives us this picture of a father who dearly loves his son but is willing to slay his son? Doesn't it mean more when that famous verse is read, for God so loved the world, the undeserving world, that he gave, he delivered up his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That brings us to the fact that there's also atoning substitution for believers here. Even Abraham and Isaac couldn't complete the picture all on their own because Jesus is a substitute for those who deserve to die. Isaac was not actually slain on this occasion, but Jesus was slain because he was the ram. He was the lamb that God would provide, like Abraham said. As John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus coming toward him in John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As Romans 3 says, verse 23, For all have sinned, all of us have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified, declared righteous before God's justice, justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, a sacrifice that appeases righteous wrath, propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We have Isaiah 53, where Jesus, like Isaac, goes quietly to the slaughter. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? They made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It wasn't just the soldiers. It wasn't just his Jewish enemies. It wasn't just Pilate who negligently let him be taken away to be crucified. It was the Lord God, the Father, whose will it was to crush his son. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Just as Abraham saw his offspring, though he delivered up Isaac to death. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, by knowing him, by knowing Jesus Christ, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. There's that substitution. Therefore, I... God says, will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Do you dare think that you somehow sort of deserve salvation from God? That you deserve the perfect father with an infinite eternal love for his son to lay his son on the altar for you? Do you think that's your right? No. Many of us, if I may speak a bit foolishly, if we were in God's place, We'd let everyone go to hell. None of us is as gracious as God is gracious. But he's gracious. He does not owe this to you. But he loves you. And so he did it. So you dare not turn away from this love. How much greater punishment do you deserve if you, as Hebrews puts it, trample on the blood of God's Son. The only thing to do in response to this, as the hymn writer said, is to give your soul, your life, your all. But there's one more thing that will take a, a few minutes to cover. One more aspect of, of the point for Abraham's offspring in this text. That is the covenant oath that was made to Abraham's offspring. How fitting that it, it was in connection with this portrait of the cross that God again uttered his covenant oath to Abraham's offspring. Remember what he promised. Countless offspring, 
victorious offspring and mediatorial, I'll explain that word, mediatorial offspring. First of all, God did promise Abraham countless offspring, and at one level that was fulfilled in the nation of Israel. Abraham's physical seed, offspring, his descendants. But it went beyond that. God had promised Abraham he would be the father of many nations. And that all nations, and this borders on a later point, but that all nations would be blessed in his seed. Paul reminds us so many times, as he says in Galatians 3.29, that if you are Christ, that is, if you are one with Christ, if you've been baptized into Christ, he says, if, if you are one with Christ and belong to him, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And you know that's because of the cross. Because since Jesus laid down his life, he will see his offspring. He will have countless offspring, children given to him because of his cross, because he purchased them by his blood. Hebrews 2, 14-16 Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, the children God means to bring to himself. Since they share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps. Christ didn't die for the angels, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. For who did Christ die? The offspring of Abraham. Hebrews 6, as it focuses on this oath that God made on this occasion. In the context, writing to Jewish Christians, this epistle says, you must persevere in your faith and not walk away from Christ. Or there's no hope for you if you reject Christ. But, he says, Hebrews 6, 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, We feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. That is, we know you will cling to Christ by God's grace. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises." For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. We might swear on a Bible. Or in other times people might swear by something else greater than themselves. But you don't swear by yourself. I solemnly swear on myself. (laughs) But the writer goes on. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, to us, the unchangeable nature, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. 
so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. That is, we know we can persevere in the faith all the way to the end by God's grace because of God's promise to Abraham and because we are Abraham's offspring. Number one, he said there's two unchangeable things. Number one, God promised and God does not lie. Number two, God furthered that promise with an oath by himself. God's not going to let you go. You're part of this countless offspring. What about the victorious offspring? Well, Christ's victory is the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Abraham. His victory over Satan and sin and death. That's shared by all believers because they're his body, the church. The body shares the victory with its head. So we have verses like. Um, oh, I didn't include it here, but we have verses like we see in Romans where Paul takes that image of the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. And he says to believers, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. But here, in this promise to Abraham, it says, your offspring will possess the gate of his enemies. It's interesting. What's the last enemy for Christ to vanquish? What's the last enemy for Christ to conquer? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself, right? And and there's this expression that shows up briefly in the Old Testament as the gates of Sheol. It shows up again in the New Testament as the gates of Hades. It's an expression for the power of death itself. But Christ's people, the spiritual seed of Abraham and his faith, will with Christ vanquish death and the grave. They will possess the very gates of Sheol, the gates of Hades. As Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Christ possesses the gates of his enemies all the way to to such an extent that he even destroys death itself. And this is the ultimate fulfillment of God's oath to Abraham that Christ would have victory over his enemies. Lastly, there was a promise of mediatorial offspring. What do I mean by that? Well, a mediator is a go-between who stands between and draws two parties together. And God promised Abraham, it's in your offspring, singular, In this person, that all nations will be blessed. The offspring of Abraham would be the mediator of all God's blessings to all of us. So we have 1 Timothy 2, verse 3. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, Paul says, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Why? Because the Gentiles, all nations, 
will be brought in and blessed in Christ. And again, Galatians 3, verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then there's a warning. Some will try a different way to get to God. Are you one of those people? Some will try the works of the law. Some will think they can keep God's laws on their own good enough to be right with God. And they can forego faith in another to do everything in their place. But Paul says, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Well, I've come at this from every angle I know how, and you've been patient. But you being patient with this sermon and then walking away isn't enough. Many of you have believed in this Savior, and this account ought to thrill your soul. You ought to see that God laid his own son on the altar for me. And he actually plunged the knife in. And the son did this willingly. He wasn't coerced. God the Father and God the Son loved me to this extent. How can I have any distrust in such a God? How can I ever think that this God would not have my best interests at heart? As Paul says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up, that is, delivered him to death for us all, how will he not, with him, graciously give us all things? And being patient with the sermon and then walking away is certainly not enough for you who have not come to Christ. There's nothing complicated about what you have to do. It's just that Unless God changes your affections and your whole heart, you're not going to want to do it. But you ought to want to do it. And God commands you to do it. God commands all men everywhere, all people everywhere, to repent, to turn from their own way, their own sins, and even their own way of making themselves look good. And God commands people to come in repentant faith to the one who lived and died and rose again in their place. How do you do that? Well, nothing you can do is a magic formula. But you must believe. Not just in a historical fact. You must believe in the sense of trust and cling to this Savior for yourself. And call on him. I know we, we've had the sinner's prayer become sort of a trite thing. 
and used inappropriately. But what do you do if you need Jesus? You ask him to be yours. You acknowledge that you deserve eternal death. You deserve God's condemnation. But you ask Jesus, I want you to be mine. And I know that if you're mine, you will give me full forgiveness with God. You'll make me God's child because you lived and died in my place. That's it. But you have to surrender to Christ. Give your life to him. Nothing less is fitting. Let's bow in prayer before we sing a hymn together. Father, we thank you for an all-sufficient Savior and for a Savior who loved us to the extent that he laid down his life for us and he was slaughtered in our place because death was the just penalty which must be paid for our sins. Father, please don't let those here without Christ, don't let them get away from this, this text from your word until until they joyfully lay down their arms, so to speak. Until they run to Jesus and not away from him. For the rest of us, we thank you that we are eternally blessed with every blessing in Christ. Help us to love him as we ought and not treat him as we so often do with neglect, with forgetfulness, Sometimes we even despise him in our hearts because we still struggle with sin. But help us to love Jesus and love you as our father, knowing that you loved us so much from eternity that it was your eternal plan to send your son, to give your son for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.